Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Thank you for tuning into the Traveler's Blueprint podcast for the travel around table discussion on the relevance of history to travel. Before we get into the conversation today, if you are yourself, you're, you're involved in the travel community, travel industry in some way, and want to join a future travel around table discussion, please send us a, an email with your website, your name, some of your information to the travelers blueprint at gmail.com, and we will get you on a future conversation. So as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the relevance of history to travel today. We have a great panel. And before we get into the topics, we're going to give everybody the opportunity opportunity to introduce themselves, tell us where you're located, how you're involved in the, the travel world, the history world, and where people can actually find your content online. So, uh, so Michael, um, coming to us from the other side of the planet, uh, where are you and uh, what do you do? So I'm currently uh, based in Perth, which is in Western Australia. Uh, my usual job is to, uh, as a conflict journalist. So I did a lot of traveling through a lot of the old Soviet countries uh, into the Middle East as well, reporting on conflicts and war zones and dictatorships around the areas. So wherever there was incredibly cheap vodka, I usually had some, some assignment to be there. Uh, I also run the Red Line, which is a geopolitics podcast. Uh, we get experts in from the White House, CIA, Harvard, Oxford, uh, to talk about the big issues affecting the world at the moment. So, uh, yeah, effectively, my my career with travel has usually been terrible, terrible hotels, terrible airports, and usually very, very cheap booze and guns. <laughs> yeah, and cheap we, guns. we had a great conversation uh, in the past with you, actually with all of you. Uh, you've all been, you're all repeat guests. Uh, JD, where are you and what do you do? Uh, so so I'm from the, the Midwestern part of the United States and uh, have, have a background in history education, uh, which kind of developed into a YouTube channel called the History Underground, uh, which kind of covers a, a variety of different history topics. But uh, probably the, the main engine of the channel is uh, a series called History Traveler, where I go to different locations and uh, kind of look at... Uh, oh, just uh, the the history behind those areas, kind of showing people um, what's there and uh, trying to make history a, a little bit more immersive, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let me talk to you about your time retracing essentially the the path of the Allied troops through through Europe during World War II. Yes, um, Andrew. Hey, I'm Andrew Tyree. Um, I am based in Los Angeles. I run a company called Coast to Costa. I started it nine years ago now. Um, and we do immersive travel in small group settings to Latin America, um, specifically to Cuba for the last uh, six years or so, seven years. Um, so I am not specifically a historian, but I have kind of been on repeat visits to a country that their history was changing really rapidly, be, being Cuba. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you all. I'm reporting live currently from from the suburbs at my mother-in-law's house. There's a three-year-old <laughs> birthday party going on outside. And I'm like, I got a snag. <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, I've got a Modelo. I'm, I, am I allowed to drink beer while we do this? Of yes, course, absolutely. Of course. Yeah, we encourage keep, it. Keep this party going. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Cashler, what's going on? Not much. Good to see you again. It's yeah, definitely. Uh, my name is Keshler Tibet. I'm based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States. Uh, I am a historian, and I'm also a local tour guide. And uh, on the side, from time to time, I'm also a travel agent. So yep. history, 
it's my bread and butter. I spend all my time just reading, absorbing information about anywhere and everywhere in the world, not just here in Philadelphia. So it's a pleasure to be back on again. And if you're listening to this and you're coming to Philadelphia, you can book a tour with Keshler through our website. Nice. So, all right, guys. So we're going to break down three, well, two main topics. And then if we have time, we're going to get into something that maybe we'll keep it as a surprise for those who listen all the way through. The two big topics are going to be the relevance of history to travel and then the importance of traveling to document major historical events, whether those are wars or protests, mass migration, elections, essentially anything that noticeably shifts the trajectory of a country in, in some way, shape or form. Let's start with the relevance of history to travel. And I think I'm going to get this going with something that I looked into a little bit before this conversation, and it is it is the, the symbol known as the swastika. So immediately, I think everybody's going to, the brains go to World War II, go to Nazi Germany, go to uh, anti-Semitism, um, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Keshler's already shaking his head. <laughs> but if you were traveling to a temple in Southeast Asia, uh, maybe a Hindu temple, Buddhist temple, you would notice that they, some of them are decorated in swastikas. And if you didn't know the historical context of that symbol, you might be pretty pissed off or just think that they're a bunch of Jewish hating people or so, you know, something. Um, but for those of us that know, it actually is a symbol of spirituality and peace. And I think it was even used in Western culture all the way up until the Nazi party stole the symbol for their, their regime. So yeah, Coca-Cola actually used it. Really? Coca-Cola used that. I didn't mm -hmm. know that. Um, and yeah. so that was just one thing when I was trying to come up with like the, the, a good example of not understanding the history and then traveling to a location and being uh, surprised to see something. Um, that seemed like a pretty good one. I don't, I don't know if anybody wants to jump in and has, has a, a, an opinion on this or, or somewhere we can kind of run with it. But why do you think it's important to know the history of a location before you go there? And anybody can take that. So I, so I find that when you, when you go somewhere, you always want to have a general idea, just always to get an idea of what the culture's like and what you're up against. You know, you don't want to be like, how great is Putin in uh, you know, in a country like Ukraine at the moment, because you, you, you may have problems over there. But what I find really interesting is kind of putting things in context. Like for me, the main one was when I, I was traveling to Turkey, I'd read so many defense papers about how important the Bosphorus Strait is. It's the sort of the bit that connects the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. So the first thing I did when I got into Istanbul was ran practically down to the Bosphorus to stare at it and just realized that it is so thin uh, to the point where, you know, I'd read so many books saying, look, there's, you can naval guns on either side, nothing gets through. And it's exactly correct. Uh, going to Russia and look at standing in where the revolution kicked off, it actually makes sense why things kick off because, they, you know, we have where the bread was sort of given out or not given out in the case. And then obviously the winter palaces were just down the road. It would make sense that people annoyed to hear would go over here later on to talk to, uh, you know, obviously bash down the door of the Russian king or czar at the time. Um, I think going to these places and seeing the, quite often the smallness of it really just put things in context. Even, you know, going to battlefields like, you know, ones in Gallipoli and whatnot, where there really is, it's quite a small dingy place to go to and you realize how awful it would have been to fight there for, uh, uh, for years and years and years uh even going somewhere like you know uh you know auschwitz and, and whatnot and realizing how bone chillingly cold it is out there 
just puts that extra harshness in it that you just, you can read it was cold in a book, but nothing will get you like standing there and letting the chills run through you and go, yeah, this would, this would be awful. Um, and I think that's a really interesting, it adds the other senses to, to a travel to a story that you don't get from reading in a book. Uh, you know, as much as you can sit on a train, it's the it's the smell, it's the look, it's the how cramped things are, it's the coldness of a situation that will stick with you for a very long time. Uh, so that's why I think going somewhere where an event has happened, it puts it into a into a context for you. It makes sense the Russian Revolution breaks out here because the bread lines were, you know, right there, not kicking off. Uh, it's a it, yeah, it just brings it to a new dimension on the other senses of how you perceive things. Yeah, it's like the it's like closing the gap of empathy. Hmm. Yeah. Someone ready to go? No, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to say, I mean, I couldn't, I, I haven't been to Auschwitz, uh, and I haven't been to the beaches of Normandy, uh, and there are places that I really want to go. And growing up and learning about World War II history uh, and, and what happened on D-Day at that beach, you'd think that the beach would be memorialized to that event completely like it was off limits to any tourists um and it's like just completely this this full memorial and that's not even the case it's a normal beach from what i understand and so to travel there and not know that and just see normal people going about their daily lives tanning and drinking and playing games and swimming in the ocean to and and not know what actually took place there it would just be like any other beach Um, and completely eliminate any real experience um, that you could have. Yeah, I think history makes the experience more tangible and more long-lasting, right? The more we know about a place, the more we like that place. The more we know about a person, we either like them more or feel comfortable with them more, and... Therefore, you know, it's it's a better experience to have a conversation because it's able to be deeper, right? Knowing a place makes the connection deeper and knowing the history is part of knowing the place. I, I think that yeah. Michael really hit the nail on the head whenever he was talking about um, know, knowing the history behind a place gives you context for it. Uh, so, I mean, if you if you look at like the, the Latin root for the word history, it, it translates like to, to narrative. Uh, so if... If you were uh, jumping in on the middle of a movie and nobody has has given you uh, a rundown of what has happened up to that point, you're not going to understand that movie as well as if you would have seen it from the beginning or if somebody would have given you a uh, a briefing on what has happened up to that point. Uh, but But if you know what has happened, it helps you to understand the rest of the movie better. And, and I think that applies to different places that uh, people travel. Uh, that if you immerse yourself in the history, it's going to help you to better understand the the culture of the place that you're traveling to and, and help you to enjoy it more. Absolutely. Yeah. A food is an easy one, um, right? Like try, like understanding the historical context of the cuisine and the ingredients and then having those dishes with the context in mind and appreciating them on a completely different level than you mm-hmm. would have without knowing how those meals evolved to what they are. I've, if I may, I, so I'm running a travel company. So I, I agree with the, what the guys have said before that it's really good 
when you kind of apply yourself a little bit beforehand and kind of, you know, read about the beginning of the movie, right? Like you got, you kind of inform yourself on the place that you're going to be traveling to, right? So as a traveler, I do that. But as a lead, like owner of a travel company, most people don't do that. So it's kind of, it's it's like you could, you should, right? Dude, like when they come to your tour of Philadelphia, they're like, I didn't read anything yet, right? Like you, it's sort of like, for those of us who work in, in travel. So specifically I'll speak, I'll speak to Cuba, right? There's some deep, hardcore history in the last 60 years, even of like all sorts of stuff in relation to the United States in the last like 500 years in relation to the United States. Most people come to take a damn selfie with a fucking car, right? But then once you're there, as me, as the the person, I'm like, so here's this thing. They had this guy called Castro. We know about Castro, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. And slowly but surely, like getting people sort of interested in the history to get some context to the culture of the place that you're living in. At first, I started it as like a food and wine tour thing to 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 Spain, um, and I found out that kind of like doing more socially rele- relevant and socially kind of like cultural like hev- heavier, like adding in like little doses of kind of the history lessons or like the, the sort of like the reality of the situation became. I'm like, you can tell, take your selfie with this car, but like, here's the other thing. Like, this is why they don't have new cars because there's a you know an embargo with the United States for the last sixty years. Like, ah, like what? That's ah. Like it seems one way. So when you're asking the question of like, why is it important? It's important because I don't think in our country specific, well, sorry, in the United States specifically, we don't get a lot of, we have to seek out information about other countries. Our news isn't filled with information of other countries. Like if you were to live in Europe, they're like, oh, here's what's happening in, in Germany, like our neighbors, blah, blah, blah. We don't hear anything about anyone else unless we sort of seek it out. Um, I think as American travelers, a lot of times we, can be we can be lazy about not seeking it out but 100 percent what the fellows are saying like learn a little bit before about what you're about to jump into and then fill in that like a jd i liked your thing of like the movie reference like fill in that rest of the movie while you're there you'll enjoy that movie so much more you'll enjoy that experience so much more if you kind of you know put some effort beforehand into 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 you know picking up a book reading it watching a documentary i just i mean i wish all my people did that beforehand. <laughs> I'm lucky if they care on the way out. You know, here's I mean? your homework before you come on my trip, dude. I started making a, a like a checklist, and it'll be like read read some Hemingway books that are you know that are Cuba related. There's this, there's a, an amazing documentary called Cuba and the Cameraman that's on Netflix that I'm like do these like couple simple tasks and like you'll like super understand what you're about to see a lot more because without the context again it like Cuba on a postcard looks like glamorous and fun and like stuck in the 50s and then you get to Cuba and you're like what happened here like this is not what I thought it was going to be but had you you know re- read my little checklist you would have known it's not just like this little paradise stuck in the 50s kind of place so yeah. the context is important historical Very. events can pull on your emotions right and then oh. when you have emotions involved to an experience it just enhances the experience and just general understanding and you take more with you it, it's, it's deeper it's memorable. bigger yeah, yeah mm-hmm. totally I think all of us on this panel agree history means a lot to us. And I say this often to my friends, we're nerds. Totally. <laughs> we are. Yeah. <laughs> That's like fair, Cash. Like, just like we just said, Americans, most Americans don't even know their own history. We don't know. Them. <laughs> so to get someone interested in another country's history, that's a huge, huge sell. It's a big ask, man. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you're spoon feeding people. For example, I have a client, I'm not going to say the name, they're going to Hawaii. This trip has been pushed back a number of times because of COVID, right? They want to see Pearl Harbor. Everyone knows Pearl Harbor. 
-hmm. Now I said, okay, now we can stop downtown. We can go to see the palace. You can learn about the history of Hawaii, who the people that were there before. Yeah, no, 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 thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to go to the beaches. We go to Pearl Harbor and nothing else. (laughs) Now at this point, I could try to force them and like, yeah. But then people push back, like, oh, I don't want to learn stuff. I'm on vacation. Ugh, for me. To to give our listeners the benefit of the doubt, I think the type of audience that is listening to this would be the type that would yeah. do their research ahead of time and hopefully want to learn more. And that's why they're listening to this. And, and I do hear nerds. of a number they're of nerds. people that they're nerds, yeah. they're nerds like us. Look, yeah. I, do, I do hear people like, oh, I want to do my research before I go on this trip. And that makes me that I'm elated to hear that. Like, oh, you're going to do research. Oh, I yeah. want to watch uh, Steve dies or whatever that the travel guy. Oh, I want I want to learn more about it. That makes me happy. But I often see that as older travelers mm. are more interested in that. And younger travelers are kind of like, eh, like you just said about Cuba, I want to take a picture in front of a car. I want to take it in front of the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, this just happened. This happened here. This is why. Eh, I want to take my well, photo here. Is it going to get likes? Yes. So exactly. That's the main motivation. So what's the fix then? What's the fix? What's, you know, here we are on a platform that listeners, that, that, that travelers listen to. Um, all of you have platforms that get, that get downloads and, or, you know, that you share with, with fellow travelers. What's the fix? How do we enhance the travel experience through teaching people why it's so important to, to learn history? Here's what I do. I make it relate to them, how it affects mm. their life, how you have these freedoms because this happened 50, 60 years ago. Mm. And once they start to say like, oh, this is my life. Uh, something I do with women often is that I'll say like, hey, you know, um, what was it? I'm a volunteer at Alfred's Alley, which is the oldest uh, continuously used uh, uh, residential street in Philadelphia. And I stop at 124, 126, and I tell them, like, did you know that two women own the business here? And they weren't married. I'm like, what? Excuse me? It's like, these two women, they own the business. This is the 1700s. This is 1727. You think that was hap- that's just happening today? It was happening back then. And then maybe a young woman's a part of the group, and she starts, oh, well, let me actually pay attention to what this guy said. Mm-hmm. He said, women had their own business mm-hmm. back then? Yeah. And when mm. they were getting older and they both passed away, they left their business to another woman because they felt men were too incompetent to run a business. <laughs> oh, wow. Let me pay attention to what he's saying now. Whoa, whoa, women are doing, oh yeah. Women had their own businesses. Some women decided not to get married. But, oh, this has something to do with me? Now I'm interested. So I find out like often if you relate it to them, even world history, if you relate it to them, sometimes you have to show them like the relationship between something happening on the other side of the world and how it's relating to something that happens in the U.S. They perk up and they want to know more because I guess in a little way, everyone it's a little bit about themselves. You know? mm-hmm. So that that's in my in my experience. Making it to relate to them makes them want to listen. Something that doesn't relate, they can't relate to at all, makes them kind of oh, okay, whatever. Move on to the next topic. Let me take a photo. Yep. I see that. I think one of the reasons I want to go to Cuba is 13 Days is one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Super good. And the Cuban Missile Crisis stuff. Like, I don't, that, that relates to anybody living on the East Coast, that yeah. whole transpiration. And 
if you're not familiar with the Cuban Missile Crisis or 13 Days, you need to watch 13 Days and yeah. do some research on the Cuban Missile Crisis because it will and make it's your really historically accurate too. From like Which, all of my tour guides and stuff down in Cuba, they're like that movie really kind of captures what was. Well, that, that solidifies it for me because I love that movie even more now. Yeah, come come check it out. <laughs> I do a thing related to that, so I'll I kind of we will kind of like bring people in with Cuba, this this land of dreams and like Cuban cars. I'll send them the the you know, my checklist of things to read. And a lot of times they don't do it, but it's like, you get them in on sort of a base level of like Instagram photos in selling travel these days. It's, it's, it's very Instagram based. It's very shallow based to be, to, you know, to just be blunt. I wish it wasn't, but it, there is a lot of it that the people are like, Ooh. And, and I'm like, yeah, we'll go to this La Guarida. It's called, it's like the most famous of these like private restaurants. It's very Instagrammable for lack of a better word. Then we'll get to La Guarida and there are people, so it was an old sort of like a governor's palace that they've made into a private restaurant up top, which was like an illegal thing. And this woman got a grant to do it. It's very kind of historically relevant. It's really bougie and like, it's a great restaurant, right? But underneath La Guarida, so people go there. So for like this, oh, like fancy experience or whatever, underneath it, it's like tenement housing, basically. They use the bottom section of the, so there's bougie restaurant upstairs. And then there's like, super segmented like the rest of it is like into these little tiny rundown super falling apart uh, apart apartments so like with ours like the like it's like the 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 cuteness of it sort of draws people in but then I'll, i'm there with these people i mean pre-pandemic for a week with tour guides that are cuban and we're kind of like so this is like what you see from home but this is like what's really here and it's very even like metaphorical and like the yeah. base of cuba is like this really difficult system that is not working. The tourists get to go up here and like have this really amazing experience while everyone else is living in these sectioned out apartments underneath. Um, I feel like people, I mean, my goal in this thing is to get people, I want to get them what they want out of the thing. It'd be nice if they get their likes and some, some cute photos out of the deal, but having some conversations in a van with, you know, 12 Americans typically are like foreigners and a Cuban and our guides and things like that. And it starts kind of being like, wait a minute, what, what happened? Like, how much do you guys make a month? You only get, there's rations, there's this, there's that. It starts kind of like becoming more real. And usually by the end of my trip, the goal, I know this sounds kind of, kind of shitty, but the goal, I love if people are hugging our drivers and if they cry a little bit at the end, I'm like, we did it. <laughs> we did it. Cause there's so, there's so much there. It's such a like really difficult and hard history. And then you meet these really amazing people that are just like in it. And if you don't, I mean, if you, if they don't cry, I don't feel like I've done my job. I'm like, you guys didn't, apparently you didn't pay attention to all every, the context of what's happening here. So that's mine. And I lure them in and then I trick them with the facts. <laughs> uh, why are people, history is so interesting to me and it makes up such a significant of, uh, significant part of why I go to the places I go to. It's sort of, it fascinates me that not everybody prioritizes history as part of the reason for their travels. I think you're um, short. I think you're selling your trip short if you're not looking at the history, right? If you're just going and sure. learning about that place, you're looking at that piece of time, that segment of that, maybe that one to two minute clip of the movie mm. and adding the history gives you everything else, right? History is layered upon layers and layers and layers of other things. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what a palimpsest is. Yes. So, so a, a palimpsest is basically a manuscript and it has writing on it, uh, usually in ink. And then if they ran out of room, they would erase what was previous there and then rewrite over it. 
but you can typically see the old text underneath. Okay. And in in history, there's this thing called a cultural palimpsest where you have basically uh, cities on top of cities. And you can see the history of places at, literally in stratospheres. Like if you go to Europe today, you'll, you can see basically the Roman Empire under modern day cities. Similarly, in the United States, uh, most streets in the United States have been built up and built up and built up because they just keep paving. So there are segments of New York City, of Philadelphia, that the door, front door of certain houses are actually below street level. And the same thing happens in like England and Ireland. And it, it's really cool. If you're really into history, look up cultural palimpsest because it just adds a complexity to the whole historical take on things that you may have your mind blown that's really cool yeah has anybody ever traveled somewhere and didn't have the history down and then came back home and realized something that they missed because they weren't educated enough on the location i i was actually just going to hit on that uh that it's nice to have the historical foundation before you go to a place uh, but a lot of times traveling to a location is is what spurs an interest in the history uh, so I, I spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine uh, in 2011, 2012, and, and 2013. Uh, as a matter of fact, Michael, I listened to your, your podcast uh, about the, the conflict in Ukraine, which was really, really well done. Um, and I, I was there whenever all of that was collapsing and when everything was going south. Uh, but, but being there really, um, I, I didn't have, my, my knowledge level was very surface as far as the history. Uh, whenever I went there, but but traveling to that place, spending time with the people, <laughs> and then learning about the history while I was there, uh, really kind of compelled me to to dig deeper once I once I got back home. Mm. Yeah, and that that's the thing you learn about when you go to these places. Like you know, we read defense papers on, and Ukraine's a really good example of this, where you know Russia's the invader, it's all this, and you think, okay, well, it's a it's a black and white issue, and then when you get to Ukraine. It's very different. You know, you beat people in Lvov and they are very pro-Western. They are, you know, we should be part of the EU, you know, Europe, Europe, Europe. And then you meet people in, in Luhansk or Donetsk or even, even you know, in Yakarkov, uh, and they are very pro-Russian. Uh, there's quite a lot of, you know, hey, you know, the Ukrainians are corrupt. We don't want to be part of that. Let's, you know, we're, all, we're, we're practically Russians. Let's be Russians. And it's it adds that extra context to a story that it, it, you don't get from reading particularly Western sources. You know, if you read Russia today, they're going to tell you that everyone loves Russia. And if you read, you know, the New York Post, they're going to tell you that they're all, you know, God-fearing American lovers. Um, you know, getting in there and actually talking and sitting at a table with people going, look, uh, yeah, I don't like this, I don't like this, and this is what I feel like. You know, I'd be better off with Russia running things, but technically, the you know, my allegiance is to a Ukrainian republic. It, it does, it really contextualizes things and makes you realize that almost every single conflict is way more complicated than you think it's going to be. I don't think I've ever walked into a, a war zone or anywhere and gone, oh yeah, I get everything. It's you walk in there <laughs> and it's so layered of just, you know, yeah. like I think one of the real things to put context with me is, you know, we always, you know, we talk about you know, Russia invading guys like Latvia as this end of the world, never going to happen, you know, it, just a big scaremongering campaign. And then the first time I went to Riga, I was hanging out with these uh, with a bunch of guys and ended up meeting the Latvian uh, bobsled team, which is another weird story. But anyway, um, the couple of guys, a lot of guys there I was talking to, they say they have bug out bags, which effectively is a bag of 
cash, uh, clothes, your passport, and a few other things under your bed. Uh, and I was very curious because obviously in Australia, we have nowhere to run to, so we don't have any of that. <laughs> um, but the change to them, like, oh, when the Russians come across the border, we're going to go to Sweden. Oh, and I'm thinking that's something you live with. That is a mindset of, you know, Russia is the enemy. Russia is coming. You know, I have to be ready at any moment for that eventuality. Whereas to anyone who's reading defense papers all day, they go, it's not going to happen. We would see build up for months and months in advance. We would know that's not coming but it gives you a mindset of why the Latvians think the way they do. If everyone's got bug out bags, it really does contextualize how they feel about Russia right on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think every conflict does give you that the moment you travel there and get there and you actually start talking to lots of just people in the bar. Um, that's where you realize where a lot of the sentiment that you don't read on the paper uh, and the, you get from polls that actually is. Talking to people in the bars where you learn all the, all the juice, man. Okay. That's where you, get the, you know what I'm saying? That's where you get the info, especially if you can kind of get someone like if you're with a friend that's local and you're in a bar setting and it starts kind of like a couple drink, drinks are flowing. And you're like, but what's it? What's really what's what's up? And they're like, oh, you know, it's fine. And then you're like, no, no, no. But what's up? And they're like, I don't know. I'm with you, Michael, on that. Like yeah. it started, that's where like the info starts coming out more and more. There's, a, there's an interesting thing that if you go to a general uh, and you ask him where his troops are moving or you ask him what's going on, he won't tell you. He said, look, that's a classified secret. I can't mm. say anything. But if you take his secretary out for drinks, the secretary knows where the mail's going. Uh -huh. uh, and they're the kind of guys who can usually give you the info you actually want. Right. Um, because as any, any person who's ever worked in an executive job knows, your assistant probably knows almost as much as you do. Yeah. Um, and you speak to these people and they are willing to, you know, after quite a few drinks, they're probably willing to tell you that, yeah, yeah, we're shipping rockets out to Uzbekistan. And <laughs> rah, rah, rah. Um, you know, that's what you get from only being there in the bar. Um, you know, usually where the conference is, it's the cheap hotel down the road that'll have all the secretaries that'll be drinking at a separate bar and they'll be far more uh, <laughs> willing to talk to you than a lot of the generals will be. I think that's one of the best ways yeah, to learn about the history of a country, going to the bar and meeting people that way and actually talking to the locals and getting an idea of what they think about their own country, not what you read about their country prior to getting there. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that we've, we've preached all the time, meet people, see where they go, like to go eat, what they like to go visit, and, and you'll have a pretty awesome experience that way. Well, I yeah. do want to, I, I want to change this the focus of this because we've been talking about international traveler a lot right and we're still in the middle of this pandemic with with travel not necessarily happening uh that much in terms of international but people can drive right like most people on the eastern coast of the united states live in a city that is uh, several hundred years old and there is history there mm. and i know if i started to dig into the history of my town i live in hummelstown pennsylvania and I know there are little placards around that say this is where bullets were made for the Revolutionary War. Oh, wow. The cemetery, two doors or two houses down from me, has graves from the late 1700s into the early 1800s up until today. And there is so much history all around you at any given moment. And you just have to dig a little bit and you can be fascinated by it because knowing knowing where you live even like the town you grew up in, even if you don't live in any, there anymore, you'll learn something that will change your perspective. Mm -hmm. I learned I live right off Route 66. I've lived there for four years and didn't know it till the pandemic. All of a sudden we're like walking because that was all you could do. My wife was pregnant and we're like, oh, let's just walk around. We're two blocks down. It's called Figueroa Street and it goes up like, um, like leading to Pasadena. 
And it was like historic route 66. And I was like, well, damn, dude, I had no idea. I live two blocks off of route 66. What the hell, man? It was interesting that like, like you said, like you can live in a place for a long, like I live in Los Angeles. I've lived here m- most of my life, except when I moved, uh, I was in San Francisco. I lived in Spain for a while. There is like, LA has this kind of like glitz and glam and like movie stars and blah, blah, blah. We don't live like, or, like around that part there's crazy history i don't know if anyone's ever seen chinatown about like mulholland and the water rights and all that kind of stuff there's mafioso stuff there's like black dahlia murder things there's all this la noir things it's a fascinating city that again like people will come to like go to tour a star's house or whatever like they give you these <laughs> shitty maps and they're like cameron diaz lives behind that gate and you're like oh cool. the tmz like, map TMZ now, like that kind of crap. And I'm like, this town, like when I got, when, when I moved back here, I was like, you know, it'd be cool is like some kind of like relevant historical kind of like, 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 you know, fun historical LA tour things. They didn't really have it. They have a a few of them. One's called like Esoteric. Um, That's really cool. That does good things. And there was another one who was, was like all about like kind of famous Hollywood death stuff. So it was kind of like on the morbid side, super interesting though. The guy was an amazing guide, but like tourism in general, swings the way of like poppy and cameron diaz's gate crap and i'm like this is so silly because i'm like our our city is so much more and deeper and cooler and like culturally super diverse and like all these great foods and cultures and different things coming in and all like kind of swirling together yeah people buy these stupid star maps or a tmz bus and go that way and i'm like yeah and there's not even it doesn't even exist like rad historical tourism in a very historically like interesting city. That's the only only time I think that someone's house is actually really interesting. I, I've seen a lot of palaces and a lot of presidential places over the years, but I was in Mongolia at the time and this we were oh. with this colonel um, and he's like, do you want to go see the president's house? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we, so we drove past it. It's like a four by two. His house is the same size as mine. It That's was so the most day. Like his front gate was literally just like a front gate. It was nothing. <laughs> Um, and just like, yeah, that's where the president lives. I'm like, oh, that, that put huge context for me. Going, that's that's oh, amazing. Yeah, this is not that rich a country because that's his house. And I'm pretty sure that's the same size as mine. And I am not a rich person. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, JD, so uh, you travel throughout the United States, throughout the Midwest for your YouTube channel. When you travel to these locations uh, in search of the historic history associated with some of the locations, specifically around uh, the, the, the Revolutionary War, right? And, and the... Um, the Civil War. Civil War, yeah. Do you notice that when you travel to these locations, the general public, the general population living there really knows what happened? It, it really depends on the place. Uh, so if you look at like Gettysburg, they know what's going on there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Gettysburg, that, that whole community is what it is because of the battle. So, so most of the people there have a uh, a, a pretty robust knowledge of of that battle. Um, other places that that you go, like I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but I've had people comment on different videos that that I've posted, and and they'll say I, I lived there for ten years and had no clue that 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 was even there. Uh, a, a good a good example. Um, I was up in Portland, Maine, and a lot of people don't know that during World War One and World War Two there were a lot of forts that were built all along the eastern seaboard that were built because the the U.S. was afraid of an invasion from um, 
Imperial Germany in World War One, and then Nazi Germany in in World War Two, uh, and then people see you know these. I went out to an island, and and there was this series of forts uh, out there um, just outside of Portland, Maine, and and people were like, I had no idea that this even existed. So to answer your question, kind of kind of both ways. Yeah. Now I'm just wondering what I don't know about. My hometown, Philadelphia, is another story. I, I'm, there's so much I know I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I I wish people would take it more seriously, um, especially as being advocates for travel. It, it's just so important. Yeah, but I do want to stress. I mean, travel is good inherently. I'm do travel, and right. we're, just know that history makes the experience a little better. And no matter what research you do, it'll enhance your experience. You don't need to know everything about that place because no one knows everything about that place. But just know a little bit. Yeah. yeah well, back to the Gettysburg example. I mean, that that's a battle that you could literally spend the rest of your life studying, just yeah. that one battle. And, and you get to the end of your life and still not know everything uh, because there's so many different stories and there's so many nuances and, and things like that. Uh, but yeah, you can get that, that base level and then use that as a springboard uh, to to learn more after you travel there or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think we we've talked a lot about the the history of people, right? Because that, I mean, the history of people is probably the most interesting because it's it is like Ketchler said, relatable. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and many other people might not, but I find the history of geology in the world very interesting, and. Like if you didn't, Bob, I don't know if you know this, you're a, and Ketchler, you're on the East Coast. So Jersey, New Jersey is basically the erosion from the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. I don't know if you knew that. The Appalachian oh. Mountains were once the size of the Rockies. And the geology of the Appalachian Mountains is the same geology as the Western coast of Africa. Right? They were oh, once, wow. they were once connected. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And if you go through the Ridge and Valley section of Pennsylvania, most of the most of what we call mountains now are actually just the bases of the mountains. And the area between was actually the peak of the mountain where the valley is now. Mm -hmm. So you could you can try to picture like when you go through portions of Pennsylvania, you can picture how big the mountains used to be because they were 12,000 feet and it was all forested. And you have these rivers cutting through these mountains and it becomes this really picturesque and you have to use your imagination a lot, but you really, you get a really interesting picture when you start to look really far back in history. Cool. Here's my thought about history altogether. I think the lack of interest simply comes from how it is taught to us Mm. in school. When you're in school, you're taught history is nothing but numbers, dates, and some places that you may never see. (laughs) <laughs> and that carries on to adulthood. Eh, what happened in, what, 1776? Okay, there's fireworks. <laughs> so and now you, every year since then. Yeah, since then. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, uh, even all of us, there's probably a point <laughs> in all of our lives where we thought history was just absolutely boring and just you know, mm. it has nothing to do with it. But something had to happen to make us change our minds about it. Just like Mike, I, I, I enjoy studying about the Byzantine Empire. Byzantine Empire. When I went to Istanbul for the first time, I lost my mind. <laughs> it's 
sent, I ran there. All I can imagine. I, I often call it time travel. Mm-hmm. So when I go on a tour or someone's with me, I say, hey, you want to go back in time with me? And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? Go back in time. Like, uh, stop. What are you talking about? It's like, we're going to go back in time. There's Emperor Justinian. There's that person. It's like, oh, they're throwing a chain across the Bosporus. And it's like, it's, it's re-engineering how they learned about history and moving it from just esoteric dates, mm. uh, facts, and little tidbits to, I want you to imagine this. Now, I'm not going to shoot dates and information at you. I want you to imagine. We're going to go back in time. Let me show you what this place looked like back in 1886. The name of a business that's along the side of the building, you know, people trying to get you inside. The clothing is different. Now I'm moving you away from a black and white photo that you can't relate to. Now I'm bringing you there. And when you start moving it away from that dates and information to, okay, now let me take you there. Let me help use your imagination. Then the spark starts to happen. For me, the spark was when uh, I was dating a Chilean woman for a long time. And... She used to get, she used to, she used to just like dig into me sometimes, like, uh, uh. and I used to think like, oh, I'm, I know things. I'm, 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 I'm American. I know things. Oh, I was the American arrogance. Oh, I know this. Oh, I don't know. And she looked at me and she turned over to me once and she said, <laughs> you don't understand anything. I said, what, what, what do you mean? You don't know your own history. How can you even talk about this? Country? You don't know your own history. Do you know what Nixon is to Chile? That Nixon, what does he got to do with anything? From that, I read The Open Veins of Latin America. And once I got to the end of that book, I literally did like this. I really don't know anything. <laughs> and it became interesting to me. So uh, sorry, right, sometimes I, I go on a tirade and I, I, I start one way, start, I start going in one direction, I go somewhere else entirely. But the point is, it's just re-engineering how people are taught history by one, making it something that they can visualize. That's why culture, people love culture. They love participating in cultural events because they can see it, touch it. So we move it away from dates and information to, I can see it, I can touch it, I can imagine it. Then that spark happens and then they want to start learning more. So when they start traveling, they start going to other places like, I need to know more. Hey, you love food? Hey, try this out. It's great. You know how this food relates to this country or why this food was developed or why why do we eat these foods? This is why. Yum, 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 yum. Oh, wow. Okay, now I'm interested. Now you prime them to learn more. Sorry, that was my tirade. I'll shut up. <laughs> no, I, I like that. It, I liked the, the point you made with your Chilean girlfriend uh, when she told you, you don't know your own history. Um, and it also ties into what Michael and JD touched up on um, with, with the differences. Depending on who you talk to in a country, you're going to get a different version of the history. There's always multiple versions of the history for anything, right? Um, I know if you talk to Russia about World War II, you're going to get a slightly different version of what happened than what we learned here in the United States. And I think it's important to not focus on one source for the history for your information and make sure that you try you know assuming you want to learn about history that you you explore multiple avenues and you try to get multiple perspectives from multiple cultures and i think when you can you do that you can maybe paint a a more colorful picture 
of the location, the destination, the cuisine, whatever it is you're, you're experiencing. It's, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, how, uh, you know, Russians or, or people in Eastern Europe view World War II. Uh, that, that was the first lesson that I got whenever I got to Ukraine. Um, our, our facilitator picked us up at the airport. And within like the first 10 or 15 minutes of being in the vehicle, you know, he asked me what I did. And I told him that, that I was a history teacher. And, uh, and he said, oh, history teacher. And he said, tell me, history teacher. Oh, crap. Who, who, mm-hmm. who won World War II? And immediately I thought, oh, no, this, this is a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a trap. So I, I, I was like, um, the, the allies? And, and he kind of laughed and he said, no. He said the Allies did not win World War II. The Soviet Union won World War II. <laughs> and, and right off the bat, I was like, okay, uh, there, there is a different perspective out there, um, you know, during, about this pivotal point in history. So you kind of you learn, um, you know, culturally what, what people uh, or how people view different events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why do the Soviets think that they won World War II? Do you know? Well, mostly, mostly because they lost what thirty million people fighting it. Um, right. They yeah. effectively wiped like seven hundred and fifty towns off the map. They did, you know, you really like the Soviets were in hard fight with the with the Germans from forty one right up until forty five. Whereas, you know, Britain kind of had a bit of time to get ready and then invade North Africa and then invade Italy. Um, you know, for, and again, it gives you an idea that we call it World War II because the whole world's involved, but the Soviets always refer to it as the Great Patriotic War. Yep. Uh, and oh, there's, wow. there are so many godforsaken Russian towns that do not have running water, but they will have a monument to the Great Patriotic <laughs> War um, wow. because it is, it is the pivotal moment for them. It is the moment that they had the pushed to the edge and they, they, they won this thing. Um, and it, the interesting thing is all the monuments in Russia will have 41 to 45 because they do not count the invasion of Poland for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> and they don't count the battle of Britain and they don't count the fall of France as part of the war for them. This is not a world war. This is the great patriotic war. And again, it gives you that really interesting perspective when you get there, that the war for them was much more, was, you know, huge in scope. You know, it ruined, if you were born in, let's say, I think in 1921, uh, so you'd be 19 when it all kicked off, there was about a 70% chance you'd be, if you were a young male, you go to war and you're not coming back. Uh, it is an absolutely devastating war for the country where they lost 30 million people in a time where there wasn't that many. Uh, and it, it does really put it in context. When you meet people like that Ukrainian taxi driver who would have, you know, that's, that's the history. That's the moment where the world pushed up against them and they said, no, nope, we'll, we'll get it done. Yeah. I, I tried to uh, make an effort to acknowledge the, the Soviet sacrifice. And I said, yeah, mm-hmm. I've, there's a, there's an old saying that I heard that uh, world war two uh, was won with American brawn, uh, British brains and, and Russian blood. And he's like, what are you trying to say that the Russians do not have brains? And I'm like, no, that's not what <laughs> well, I'm saying at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, they they have a very very different look uh, viewpoint on on that war, um, and, and it's it's helped me to have a, a more robust view of the war as well. Americans hmm. think that we won the war, uh, you know that we think that, we won everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we're um, winning right now, right? Whatever's happening, we're yeah. But in, in, in <laughs> terms, arrogant people. I mean, yeah, like Americans lost, I think around four hundred thousand. And, and that was in both theaters. Uh, you compare that to the Soviets, 
Did you say 30 million, Michael? Yes. That includes civilians, obviously. Um, sure. But it just, it devastated them. That's massive, uh, effectively. Man. That's so many. Oh, yeah. And because, you know, disease kicks in as well. And you've got just, it ruined. Food shortages, it's, all that, all that extra. So they think like, for instance, Stalin had a policy of, of uh, scorched earth. So effectively, if the town was going to fall to to the Germans, he would kill all the livestock. He'd, you know, poison the uh, wells, burn the village down, um, which is if you, it was how Napoleon lost because there's just no logistics. There's nowhere to put your troops up. You can't, you know, you can't get the beef and food that you usually would from the land. But it also ruins everything for your own people as well because they have now have nothing to eat. Um, and then obviously the Germans are going to feed the German troops first. So a lot of them starve to death as well. It's a really, really, really nasty war, um, from both, from all perspectives. And yes, the Russians just absolutely to this day, they still, uh, they still really haven't recovered from it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know Stalingrad was like the worst of Betty's battle in the entire, in the entire war. Yeah. One of the like for numbers wise, almost it comes down to because that's the because there's such a wide front line, it's very difficult to really kind of give it this is the battle of like the battle of Stalingrad, particularly. You know, there's fighting up the river, there's fighting down the river, there's fighting in Stalingrad, there's pincer movements all around the place, and it goes for like six months, seven months uh, of absolutely awful conditions. Uh, if you really want to be depressed, uh, there's a, a fantastic, I can't remember his name because it's about 5 a.m. in the morning over here. <laughs> um, there's an amazing diary of this, this German soldier who's like, I just want to fight the war. You know, I've been, you know, all the, Rus- the Russians are surrendering too quickly. I'm not even going to get to shoot my gun. And then oh, I'm going to Stalingrad. How bad will that be? Uh, and you just watch him go from like, I can't wait to win and just gets worse. And eventually he's like final. burying potatoes in the ground just to heat them up enough that he can actually cut them and eat them. Um, it, it's a very, very dark story. Um, but yeah, like again, these battles are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of little battles that event it just kind of have a bit of a geographic location. Mm. All right. Uh, so I, I guess sort of keeping with this theme of, of you know, the happy topic of war, um, <laughs> let's make a transition here uh, and talk about the relevance of traveling to document history. Um, several of you do that. Um, Andrew, you with Cuba, seeing it, you know, over how, how long have you been going to Cuba again? You said nine years, I think? Uh, nine years since I opened the company, about seven years with going to Cuba. There was yeah. a lot that jam-packed in those seven years. I'm not one that's good at documenting things, um, which is unfortunate. I, I have pictures and we've been able to sort of gather pictures from other people, but we were there. So Obama opened when, when Obama, so I started doing like uh, trips to Cuba a little bit before Obama opened them. I'd been Obama opened it. We went when Obama was there. So we didn't know. Right. So he opened it and it was this big kind of influx of American tourism. And we were like, right place at the right time. We're like, cool, we can like make this work. We, Plant, plant. So the first one was like right before my wedding. I got married, but Cuba had just opened. So I went down to Cuba with a group of people. My wife was like, go down there, figure this out. Let's do this. So first one was that just very early stages of like this new peace between America and Cuba. That was cool. The next one was a couple months later. So we had it planned way early. So Obama crashed our visit and decided to come also right before Obama came the what's uh beyonce and jay-z showed up also so it was just crazy it was just like this huge like all of a sudden all the cool people were going to freaking cuba 
not us. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but like we got there. So the, it, we got there, we're in Havana. It was just like hoopla. So fun. Everyone was like Americans. Oh my goodness. This is so great. Like we're friends. It was like, it's really beautiful. Kind of like we can be, we're cool. Like, and I'm like, so, you know, we've, we don't have any beef with you guys. And they're like, we have yeah. no beef with you. Like we've been waiting for this moment. Like we love you. We're like, we're like brothers. It's our governments that hate each other. Like they're stupid. I'm like, thank you. Governments suck. Right. We're like, yeah, governments suck. So like, that was really great. And then we were coming back in. So we like leave Havana for a couple of days and we're coming back in and we see the Obama motorcade leave. So we were like, wow. Like we literally kind of passed them on the freeway. You see, I don't know if it was him specifically, but like the American motorcade, like hardcore American stuff leaving. So I was like, this is amazing. I got to see Obama meet Raul Castro on a TV in this bar in the middle of nowhere on the island of Cuba. And like the like old Cuban men are kind of like crying and like hugging us. It was like really cool, right? So right after that, right as we were leaving, the Rolling Stones played a concert. That was their first legal rock and roll concert in since <laughs> since like the 60s. So since since like um since Castro came in. It was it was insane. It was like this really great thing. So a little bit after that, um, we were there when Trump got a, a, a reelect when Trump got so when Obama when Trump got elected, that was a different thing. I was there the night that Castro died. That was insane. It was like I just happened to be there, man, on all the hits, like all the really cultural relevant weeks. We just happened to like the same weeks as the cultural relevant. It, it was <laughs> like from really good to they were super stressed about the Trump thing to we came out of a bar at night out of this like big art gallery and uh, into a cab in like a pirate cab kind of thing in an old car that was all beat up and gasoline smelling. And the man turns to me and he's like, our leader has fallen like kind of thing. And I'm like, what? Like, and we're like all hey, 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 like, you know, kind of drunk and like, yay. And he's like, Senor Castro Merto. And you know, I'm like, whoa, what are you talking? And he's like, yeah, our guy just died. And I'm like, you guys, Castro just died. And it was just this really, the guy called his wife. So he's pre playing somber to me and is like, oh, he's American. He's not going to understand this. And then he's like, honey, is it true? Is that son of a bitch dead? It was like this really like, <laughs> like real version he's like our leader has fallen to me and then turns to his wife is like is that sob dead kind of we went out in the streets it was it was my only kind of taste of like that sort of conflict reporting life which i think is really cool ps michael i'm like i think that's that sounds just really cool for a kind of history geek slash like adventure seeker like myself we went out in the streets nothing happened man there were just like cops patrolling to make sure that nothing happened i thought it was going to be some kind of like counter-revolution None of that happened. All this to say, it was this amazing spur of like ups and downs and greats. And when their new president got reelected and got, they, they have a new president, um, Diaz Canel is his name. When he got elected and actually put through, Raul Castro stepped down. We were there when Raul, Raul Castro stepped down and passed the torch to this new guy. And like Cubans have this new sort of found hope. I didn't document it. And I like well enough, I feel like, and I wish that I would have because None of this was news in the United States, maybe in Miami, but like I came back and my, I'm like, oh my God, did you hear my wife say, oh yeah, they kind of said that Castro died. Is he like everything all right? I was like, that's it. Like we don't, we're in Los Angeles. No one cares over here. No one hears about it. It's not news over here. I'm like, this was like a massive conflict for such a long time with our country. And like, I'm there the night that he dies and I come home the next day. We thought the airports were going to be like shut down. I was like, oh my God, I made it out. My wife's like, oh yeah, I heard that Castro died. Is everything all right down there? And I'm like, that's it. That's like, that's it. That's, that was the thing for me being an American 
being like, we don't hear anything. That's a, such an important item of history for them and for our two countries kind of like separately, right? That's like a really big deal. And there was barely a headline um, the next day or the next like couple of days with it. And I was like, this is, it's, it's kind of, it, it's almost irresponsible of me for not kind of putting on my small platform more of that information out. I just, I'm like, I'm a, you know, a, a, like a tour guide or like a travel operator. I'm not like a, like a journalist. Um, that being said, I wish I would have, I would have kind of spoken about it more or like put it out there more. Well, I think that goes to what Bob and I talk about a lot on our podcast is to, even if it's just like a paragraph or a few bullet points, just write something down in a journal each night. Yeah. 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 To be able to look back Smart. on it, you would have had you have much more detail about your emotions and, and, and what you actually experienced that time. Um, it, there's a lot going on in the world at any point in time. And there's All a the lot of people documenting it. I mean, just right now, I try to stay up on world news. Uh, I know some of you do much more than I do, but, you know, there there are riots in Ireland right now. And uh, you have things going on with China. Um, and it, it's important to understand the state of the world, I think, especially as travelers, not only knowing what to expect when you go to a country, but sort of getting, it, 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 it sort of makes me feel good to kind of have an idea of where the world is going in some way. Um, does anybody want to share things that they've experienced, they've also documented and why it's important, or just maybe the importance of traveling or documenting travel or documenting I, historical events while traveling? I think there's so many small details you don't get until you get to, to a country. So a really interesting, uh, when I was in Kyrgyzstan doing some reporting, one of the things I noticed, because I also, from Kyrgyzstan, I did a trip right afterwards to go to Xinjiang, which is the bit of the Uyghur bit of China that is having all the problems at the moment. One of the first things I noticed when I got to the Xinjiang airport was realizing that all the security systems were the same brand and same company and same, uh, you know, all the same equipment that I'd seen in Bishkek, which I went, that was weird. So that's when I started digging into things and realizing that effectively, very quietly, the Kyrgyz government had effectively outsourced to the Chinese for their security and facial recognition programs. Uh, and the Chinese were running testing in Kyrgyzstan for stuff that would later be used in Xinjiang. And it was something that no one, I, I hadn't read anywhere. I hadn't figured, you know, no one, I don't think many people have figured it out until you literally go from one airport to the other within a few weeks and realize that it's the same security systems, the same monitors, the same brand of cables. It's down to the little details like that, that gives you the spark to really dig into something that is much deeper and much more evidential on a bigger, on a bigger process. So that was one of the first signs that uh, the, Kyrgyz government was very much aligned themselves with China to with security issues. And even and now, effectively, by digging into that, we've discovered that the all, all Kyrgyz CCTV footage and all Kyrgyz, uh, you know, effectively security stuff goes to servers in China before it comes back to Bishkek again for analysis. So China has access to almost everything that happens in Kyrgyzstan now. And it's little things wow. like that. you We wouldn't have known so to go crazy. digging that, that, that close into it until it was just a by happenstance, I was just not hungover enough to remember uh, to check all the security systems while I was in Xinjiang airport. Uh, and this is what I mean by traveling. You can get those little details that give you the hint to go into the bigger ones. Yeah, I, I want to put something into perspective because I was curious. So I just did a quick Google search and I don't know. I'll pose the question first. Do you guys know how many people have ever lived? 
Oh, ever, ever, ever. Right. We would, there's about 7 billion people right now living at this moment in time. 12 billion. I would say 20 billion. I was going to say 15. Kessler, you got a guess? 18 oh, yeah. so so since the dawn of like our modern homo sapiens there have been 107 billion people dang that's a lot of history <laughs> a lot of history and a lot of it not even recorded though. a lot of it right. not even recorded yeah right yeah. we've only had recorded history for like the last three to four thousand years and mm. there is a whole segment uh, and granted most of the population has happened in that time like i think there's that's probably over 50 percent of the all of the humans that have ever lived are in the historical era but mm. that's still 50 some billion people that have their own individual stories and i think like talking to all of you right bob and i have had conversations with each of you individually and we have heard your stories and the history behind each of you is fascinating in and of itself, but now we're coming together to talk about the greater picture of history and its relevance to travel, which is also fascinating. So I think you can dig as much as you want into something and you can extract something interesting out of it, or you can do a base level and it will still enhance your experience just a tiny bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of blown away by this history now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what is just just curious? Um, what is everybody's like favorite historical era? That's a good question, Bob. What is Absolutely. yours? I feel like you have an answer already. I I like the I like ancient Rome, uh, ancient uh, Greece. Uh, good, I really good enjoy that history. The the beginning of democracy and the great philosophers and all that stuff. That's kind of I like reading about that. Mm-hmm. Michael, did you have one? Yeah, I'd, I'd say probably like the early Cold War era because I think it sets up, you know, World War II was an absolutely dynamic shift in, in so many directions for the world that studying sort of what happens in, in Korea right after World War II, what happens in Central Asia after the death of Stalin, after what happens in Europe after Europe is effectively divided in half, even watching the you know, the Americans gained such a huge power boost after the after, uh, for, uh, Second World War that even Caribbean nations and Central American nations have are pulled in by the gravity of the US power at that point. You know, it is such a, entry, if you understand that sort of period between, let's say, 45 and 61, you really do understand the, the building blocks of the world we, we live in. Even think concepts like the European Union are born out of the fact that France and Germany and all these countries are wiped out economically by the bombings and they can effectively have to bound together to make a steel community that can actually sell this stuff. Mm. You know, all of these major things that we look at our lives, so the European Union, modern travel, uh, a, a world that doesn't solve problems by conflict, uh, you know, borders with much anymore, is all born out of World War II and born mm. out of that very, po that just posterior of 45 to 61 and I think if you understand that, you understand a lot of the dynamics of how the world works today. I, I hate to be the uh, the stereotypical middle aged male, but um, <laughs> that, that that era from from World War One to World War Two is so fascinating yeah. to me. And, and like you said, that that has 
been like the the foundation and the springboard for everything globally um that that we know today um i mean we we've talked about the the soviet union a, a little bit i mean without world war 1 there's there's no soviet union um and it just there's just so much uh geopolitically and and just the human interest stories uh from world war 1 to world war 2 that um even whenever I try to, uh, you know, go and, and learn about other periods in history, uh, that that era is always kind of my home base that I, that I end up coming back to. So this seems like a good segue point uh, for for what we for our last question of the day, um, and I'm going to say something that I think might be controversial. Uh, oh so, no! Yeah. There so so World War to uh, the Cold War. On the end of that, we had the United States come out as a, as a global power, superpower, right? The, the strongest nation in the world. I mean, I, that's what, at least what I was told in American history. Not <laughs> <laughs> um, what Ukraine would say. That's that cab driver. And so what we all know and enjoy uh, about history is that countries come and go, empires rise and fall, and the person at the top doesn't always stay on the top. Um, I am a believer, and this is very, this is something that's controversial, that someone needs to police the world. And I feel comfortable knowing that it is the United States being the police officer and not China or Russia. Um, because I think someone's going to do it. There's someone who's going to be the top dog in control of everything. And I, and I, like growing up at a time when it's us and not them and them is just sort of whoever that being said do you guys see the united states continuing as the top dog moving forward or because it feels like we're at a pretty crazy point in history and i know that's just that could just be because everybody always thinks that their time in history is pretty important but it seems like there's a transition or it seems like there's a lot of things stirring in the world right now do do we see the United States as in a transition period right now? Oh, I'm happy to tell you this. So I said the United States is in a bit of a transition because obviously we at the end of the Soviet Union, there's this weird period where it never happened before. There was a hyperpower. Effectively, since Rome, there has always been two or three nations kind of jostling for that, that top tier spot. After the Soviet Union falls, there is just the Americans. They become this hyperpower for, you know, effectively till around 2016, 2017, when you start to see China really, really build things up. But I'm also a huge believer in, in the, in a theory that kind of Tim Marshall puts out and I really kind of clung to it is that the hand of cards theory. So effectively every country has dealt this geographical hand of cards. So for instance, Pakistan is, I had a pretty bad hand of cards. It's split between, you know, there's Pashtuns and Baluch and all these other countries and everything relies on the Indus River and all their major cities are right next to the Indian front lines. It's a terrible hand of cards to play because there's so many problems that can come up quickly. When you have somewhere like Germany, they've always been typically successful because they've got navigable waterways, it's flat country, it's easily populated and it's very arable land which has also effectively got a nice bit of mountains on the bottom. So it's very hard to invade from the South up. You know, the United States has one of the, if not the best hand of cards, even you could ever ask for. It's an ocean away from any other big competitors. 
It's mm. got huge amounts of land. It's got incredibly navigable waterways. I mean, the Mississippi is just such an important thing to US trade. Uh, and it's effectively got all the best bits of, of Europe, all your arable stuff, all your land, all your, all your people, and fairly homogenous, that it's going to be a fan, it's going to be a top contender regardless. I mean, just by the cards they're dealt, they're in a, a better position than I think anyone could ever ask for. Even guys like Russia, like you look at Russia, how big it is. In the wintertime, they really only have like two nag two ports that work. That's it. Mm. Uh, whereas the United States has you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of ports. Two and the United States do- doesn't have, you know, an enemy that is really threatening to them on their, on their borders either. You know, Russia has to contend with the fact that everyone around them hates them and wants to get them. <laughs> whereas America has to deal with Canada. And I'm going to say this as a Canadian citizen, we're nothing to be worried about. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> <Good job. laughs> uh, and, Mex- and Mexico, who is never going to be able to, you know, get itself in a position to project power, let alone <laughs> invade the United States. I think those days are past them. So I think the Americans are coming into a period where they are back to competition. Their China is obviously going to be a big player now. And Russia is, you know, they still have a bunch of nukes. They shouldn't put aside. Um, but the Americans have this amazing set of cards geographically and this amazing position that I don't think we'll ever see a world where America isn't in the top four, top three spot. Uh, and I think there's still a little while to go before China can really do the projection. You know, it's the, even when you go into Iran, people wear blue jeans and know who Bruce Springsteen is. Whereas I don't think many people know who the 10 top 10 pop stars from China are. There's still this cultural projection that the U S have. And I think Christmas is actually a really good example of that as well, that <laughs> even countries that have nothing to do with Christianity tend to celebrate Christmas and have an idea of this Coca-Cola red, you know, hat with a bobble, um, that only comes from America. That's it's a Coca-Cola advertisement is the projection of Santa we have, mm-hmm. but it just shows the Americans have a cultural presence that, you know, other countries like Russia and China do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think while there's blue jeans and Coca-Cola, I'm, I think the U S is, is going down. They need, you definitely need to do some reforms, but it's still got a really good hand of cards. I think the interesting thing about China for me is their, the the way the government controls the people is fascinating but also the way the chinese culture is and i know china is vastly diverse in terms of the individual enclaves throughout it but the sense of community and the sense of working together far surpasses anything the united states has ever had Mm. and maybe that is because that we have such a diverse culture of people that we have this individualist idea of it's our family, it's my family, and we need to fend for ourselves rather than bringing the community mm. together to do something bigger than them, than yourself. Mm. And I mean, China has already done these incredibly large infrastructure projects in countries that the United States has kind of looked over. And I, I think China is positioning itself in some of those global areas to, I guess, supersede the United States as a global dominant. That's just what I've taken from the last three or four years. Well, ec- economic, economically, yeah. they probably will. Um, but, the, you know, the Americans will still be a power to contend with. They've still got Absolutely. a very large military. They've still got a yeah, lot of yeah. power projection. 
you know, I China will maybe enlarge it economically, but America is the only one with seven battle groups who can put, you know, uh, 10,000 troops into Kuwait very quickly. Mm. Um, China just doesn't have that force projection as of yet. That may change, but uh, for the next 30 years almost, the Americans will probably be <laughs> the dominant military for a while. But mm. economically, China will overtake us very soon. Does troop numbers, do troop numbers matter anymore? Where the way I see wars going, man, boots on the ground is becoming less and less likely, yeah. and it's going to be like this digital warfare, and whoever controls more on that front is actually going to be the one that comes out. I think top. we're all going to unite together eventually, and we're all going to face Skynet. <laughs> <laughs> it's us versus the, the robots. Yeah. There have been, a, there have been I think, boys. five documentaries about that. Skynet program that China has? Yeah. <laughs> no, the Wasn't it Terminators. Skynet in Terminator? I was yeah. going to say, right? Okay. Yeah, I remember reading an article. They decided to name it Skynet because the Skynet from the Terminator movies was very negative, and they wanted to put a positive spin on it. So <laughs> They should rebrand, man. That, that name is <laughs> It's like the swastika at this point. Just mm-hmm. it, It's not a yeah. symbol for peace anymore, man. Skynet? Coming full circle here. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, coming out. A little, little, a little pullback. I do think that there's something to be said um, about it, like whether or not, like glo- global superpower, like like Michael was saying that there, that the United States will probably always be a contender. But I do think that there's like a really big, like kind of issue with us culturally. Is this like individualism versus like kind of the the rest of your society? I lived in Spain for years, and there. Like they were just so like my individual rights are not more important than the rights of the community or the the rights of the people around me. And it's just built into the society of like, like in America, it's like, I do what I want. I don't care. Like me, 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 screw everyone else kind of thing. And I think that's a, not a good quality. I'm just going to go back, so I go back, and, forth on that. I go back and forth on that. Sometimes I, I agree with you. And in other yeah. times I look at what we have. Uh, economically and with our military and but at what cost the, the, but at what right, cost is the thing. right we're not that's, we're not the happiest country we're the happiest countries country. are the one that have you know Societies things protected for them chill. like right healthcare. like education and healthcare yeah. and parental yeah, leave but, but when china starts invading the world who is who's denmark and sweden and poland gonna come to they're gonna <laughs> they're come to the united states for help. <laughs> so happen. yeah they could be happy up there because <laughs> yeah. we're the ones covering the bill <laughs> we're the ones making sure things are okay they're gonna be real happy until china decides that not nah. right 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 <laughs> and so and so yeah i i get it like there are aspects of of those nordic countries that i really like and that i yeah. wish the united states would sort of would sort of um take on in a way but then then i go back to the policing thing where i think that someone needs to stay in charge um and i kind of want it to be us (laughs) you think an individual country should do it or a global task force yeah but a global task force would be preferable but what are these countries what are the eu countries doing that like you don't uh, i I don't know yeah ideally like united nations kind of deal right yeah then it's kind of like equally everyone kind of like chips in on it rather than but, one nation being like, we got this, we got everything. You're like, but no, are they no, no, putting as much into the pot as we are? Yeah. Oh, I think there's a lot that goes on here that Michael has way more information. There is a program, similar, uh, Five Eyes or something, where it's uh, France, the United States, 
uh, England, and I can't remember the others, but they share information back and forth. And we all kind of like keep eyes on each other and share information and go back. I feel like Mike is going to say something about this, but I, yeah, I think it's like a, like a, like a alliance of, I'll keep an eye on your guys. You, you keep an eye on your it's guys. like a neighborhood like, watch for the world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mike is laughing like, mm-hmm, probably. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 you're, ex you're exactly right. Five eyes and the other ones you're thinking of, uh, Canada and Australia. Yes. So. Oh, there you go. Yeah, we're, we're the guys who police the South Pacific. We're like, yeah, you can have those spits of islands. We'll do with that. Um, yeah, I, I think it, the American retreat will be a really interesting thing. Now, what I find really, people always say, oh, well, the Americans, you know, the, the imperialists. But the a really interesting thing to look at is the Americans retreated from a base uh, in, Kurd in Kurdish bits of Syria. The Americans, when they pulled out, the Russians took that base over oh, within wow. six hours to the point where the cokes six in the hours? fridge between the, the cokes in the <laughs> fridge were still cold when the Russians got there. Wow. Um, and it just shows you that in an absence of power, someone will move it. Someone will do it. Um, yeah. and that's, that's the trouble. The Americans <laughs> obviously <laughs> gain more from the relationship than anything else. So Everyone goes, oh, the Americans, you know, we're, we're, we're patriots and we helped the, you know, Europe recover from, uh, from World War II and we're great people, but it's because you needed, you needed a consumer market to sell your stuff to. That's why you did it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, and yeah, JD would know because he's, he's a history teacher, you know that, that the Marshall Plan was mostly about making sure there's people to sell stuff to still. Uh, and also it's a lot easier to buy it now than get it off from the Soviets later. Um, effectively, the Americans yeah they will retreat in places and you may see them com uh, concentrate on areas that are more you know more dear to them like the european union the caribbean and latin america but if the americans get a retreat out of an area there's very little places in the world which don't have a, a hegemon like if you think about countries that aren't aligned to the american or aren't aligned to either moscow beijing i'm going to call it maybe brasilia and uh and washington i can't think of many um, mm. everyone kind of has a, a, a hegemon or a Patreon that they kind of, they always answer to. Mm. Um, even if they, they say they're completely independent, you know, Turkey's a completely independent nation, but a lot of their foreign policy seems to align very well with the Americans. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm going to throw one more question out and then we could, we could wrap up because we've been on for, for a little bit now. Um, another thought experiment, I think. With the United States as it exists today, very, very uh, energetic political uh, atmosphere, people essentially appear to have picked one side or the other, and they're they're going at it. Um, that being said, if you look back on one specific time in history, uh, the end of the Roman Empire, when they transitioned to Eastern Rome, Western Rome fell. And Eastern Rome essentially began, historians now reflect upon it as uh, the Byzantine Empire. But at the time, those people thought they were, they were considered Romans. They would have called themselves Romans. They didn't know that. There was a, there was a shift in art and, and architecture and poetry. It was the Renaissance, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, in the United States, you're seeing this, you're seeing this cultural shift are we living in a transition period that, that historians will then look back upon and say, okay, this marked a time where it wasn't really the United States anymore. It was something different. And maybe they'll have a term for it. Because I think that 
with this political divide, uh, people may start moving to states that align with their ideas and other people are going to, you know, red and blue. People who are living in red states are going to be blue, go to blue states and vice versa. And, and you might see this mass immigration to align with people's political values. And at that point, if we're even more divided by borders, are we still the same country? And again, this is just a, this is just something that I thought about. This is just a thought experiment. But if anybody wants to have any input on this, what they think about that, that'd be great. I think that we're definitely in a, a transition period. Uh, there, there's a book that I have, and I, I haven't completed it yet, but it's it's the concept is fascinating to me. It's called The Fourth Turning. And the, the basic premise uh, is written by a couple guys back in, in the 90s, and they kind of predicted what's happening now. Uh, the, the basic premise is that history is, is cyclical. And uh, about every 80 years, you see like some sort of crisis event that, that crops up. Um, so the, the American revolution would have been, would have been a turning where there was a, a crisis event. Um, so the, that generation gets tested, uh, about 80 years after that, you have the, the civil war, uh, which, I mean, if you want to talk about a divided time, um, I don't know. Yeah, politics is highly divisive right now. Is it worse than it was in 1860? I, I don't know. Um, and then about 80 years after that, you have World War One, the the Great Depression, World War Two. Uh, there there were people during the Great Depression that didn't think the United States was going to survive. They thought this it, it's over. Like this this whole thing has failed. This system has failed us. Um, and then here we are about 80 years later at another turning uh, where we've, we've got this, this pandemic. Uh, we, we have uh, a lot of civil unrest and, and a lot of political unrest. And uh, this, this generation is being, being tested. So, so to answer your question, I, I, I do think that historians are going to look back at, at this particular era as, as one of those turnings. And how it ends up, I guess, is anybody's guess. Right? We don't really know. I haven't seen the end of that movie yet. Right. right. <laughs> we're, not, we're not to the end of that movie yet. Yeah. Right? yeah. 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 We're not there yet. Uh, oh. Does anybody else have anything to add before we close? I, I think the United States, you know, can, can recover, but there are obviously a few problems that are going to have to be solved. One is the fact that, uh, you know, people have lost, lost a lot of faith in the government. When you... Mm. You know, a fun, a fun game I like to play is GeoGuessr, where it kind of drops you somewhere in the world and, you know, you have to pick where you are. And I think it's really interesting whenever I played it, where, you know, because we play it with some of the Patreons uh, for the show, is as soon as the roads get really shitty, everyone goes, oh, it must be the United States. Which is for the nation that is the leader in the world on almost everything that has the best military of all time, you have the worst infrastructure. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I, I can sit in, in godforsaken bits of like, you know, you know, China or Kyrgyzstan and they'll still bitch about United States roads. Um, and this is, you know, it's because effectively you guys have gone tax cut, tax cut, tax cut. I mean, there used to be what 90% tax on, on, you know, uh, once you hit a certain threshold back in there. Can, you know, I'm saying they say the glory days of post World War II, where you guys actually built infrastructure, uh, and now it's very individualistic. There's less. Hey, I don't want to build a highway that'll make it easier for the outer suburbs to get in. I'd rather have a tax cut of 200 bucks, mm. uh, and that is something that is going to put a lot of 
uh, distrust in, in a government when you don't see you know, the things that you see every day that a government should do, like build roads, build schools, schools are underfunded, build airports, all the airports in the United States are falling apart. Terrible, yeah. it, it is going to hurt your faith in a government. Now, I do think that as much as people are, they have certain issues they're divided on. Like if you, if you go in a room, you know, obviously abortion is going to be really a divisive one, you know, marijuana might be a divisive one, but majority of politics, majority of policy, if you take away the two, the red and the blue aspect of it, is exactly the same. Even when you go to deep Alabama and you say, should schools be more funded? They'll go, yeah, I think so. Uh, even when you go to Kentucky, they'll say the same thing. If you go to you know California, they'll say the same thing. And I think a really interesting, uh, they actually went and did a bunch of, um, you know, it went to some of these deep red states like Kentucky and Alabama <clears throat> and went, do you think we should have a rail system? Do you think we should have uh, better funded healthcare? Do you think we should? There was just yeses. And then they go, these are the policies of the Democrats. And they went, well, I'm not voting for the Democrats. They're, they're baby killers. I'm not doing it. You know, I think once we can get past, you know, a sports team almost of right. I've, I've read because they're my team and get to policy debates and actually edu- have a good educated debate and, and, you know, make people aware of the political process that a vote for, this party was probably going to get you healthcare that actually may bring the United States together more than red versus blue Kentucky versus California. Um, Because I think the things that divide a country are not nearly as strong as the things that put the country together. I saw a video where they went to New York city and interviewed Mm -hmm. people on the street and they listed out, you know, different policy statements. And uh, you know, these were people who identified as uh, you know, liberal and it gets to the end of the video and they've agreed with almost everything that has been said. And uh, they, of course, turn the switch on and they say, these are all things that Donald Trump has said yep. that, that he wants. So, so I, I agree with you. There, there's probably more that unites us than divides us. Correct. I w- I'm hoping for a thing. That being said, I agree. I think, I think there's a thing that just sort of like unites human people in general. Everyone kind of wants health and safety for their family, health and safety for their community. If we could extend the idea of what that actually means rather than just my own family, but rather like the bigger family, if we could somehow get to the point of like this togetherness instead of this divisiveness, that would be fantastic. I think we have so much, there's so much potential in this country. I think we do really, really great things. I think we have potential to really just be fucking great. But like there's this so much of this backbiting and this inner fighting amongst us that I'm just like, can we drop that shit and get better already? Can we just drop it and like move forward instead of like inner fighting and like us versus them and blah, blah, blah. It holds us back. It's not progressive. It doesn't get us anywhere. We just fight a lot and complain a lot and we're pissed off about it. And I'm like, kind of over it, man. I just had a baby a couple months ago and I'm like, everybody shut up and let's just be cool. Like, let's just, I'm like, let's just come together, man. Let's be like, let's be nice to each other. Be nice to each other. See, That's, I, I don't know. You I, know what I'd I mean? Argue I would love that, if niceness came back. I, I'd argue that uh, divisiveness and tribalism is as human nature is essentially yeah. anything else. Uh, yeah. there's, no, there's no evidence for me to think that we'll get to a point where we're not, we're not going into our little tribal uh areas and, and fighting the other tribe i think that's but i feel we don't I even have a tribe we have our home versus our neighbor versus the other neighbor i'm like when when will there be any kind of unity it's so individualistic that it's like it's detrimental at this point i feel like you know tribalism yes but i'm like we i don't know i'm i'm particularly kind of like open and nice and whatever in my neighborhood and like i, I know and like my neighbors but it, there's just 
I don't know. There's too much of this divisiveness that I'm like, at some point, someone has to be unified. At some point, you have to believe that other people are sort of like on your side and want the best for your community slash potentially country and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Hopefully. But for all of its faults, um, it is still a destination for a lot of people. Where's that? World. Us? The United yeah, States? It's, yeah, it's yeah, still a land of opportunity, I think. It's yeah, still Coca-Cola definitely. and blue jeans, man. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen and stuff, like Michael still does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you if you know? go to if you go to other countries, uh, you know, they, they probably have the same complaints that we do. You go to Cuba and they're you know Dude. celebrating <laughs> to their wife whenever Castro is dead. Uh, you know, <laughs> quietly <laughs> to their wife. That's yeah. super true. Um, That's so. the thing. We're a lot closer than 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 we think. They're, we're a lot more us than us versus them. We're a yeah. lot more kind of connected as people. I think it comes down to some travel thing where we can't we can't get too big. We can't make our tribes too big. Eventually, it's like sure. okay, I know twenty people, and that's all I need to know. Everybody else, <laughs> yeah. you know, screw you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I think we're cool. I think we're ready to close. It's been a great conversation. Jay, did you have something to add? No. no? Um, okay. Um, enjoyed it. All right, guys. Yeah, Michael, a specific thank you to you for listening to us talk about American history, you not being an American <laughs> citizen, and uh, coming to us at 5 a.m. from the other side of the world. You get yeah, a we'll... pre-citizenship for this, so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we have Paul. You're an honorary American now. Welcome. <laughs> well, I, I'm, a, I'm a Canadian citizen as well, so I'm just a frozen oh, American at this point. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, yeah, thank you. Really appreciate your time. Um, the, the links to all of your platforms will be in our show notes so if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about any of our guests please do that hit the subscribe button for us hit the uh, follow like share do all that good stuff and uh yeah thank you tune in next week